Well, it's a couple of days after Christmas now. The presents are opened, and uh, the tree looks bare. There's maybe a few fragments of the Christmas wrapping paper still to be found in the living room, and uh, the company's gone home <clears throat> for a lot of us anyway. The trash is a mound out by the curb, and the eggnog's all gone. The party's over. Question is, now what do you do at this point? Well, you can start just simply by breathing. Breathe. Just breathe. You know, for some of us, you know, when we, when, during this time, this season after Christmas, you know, it's a great time to look back on what Christmas really was all about. And for some of us, that might seem a little bit like, you know, asking somebody if they got the number of that truck because we feel like we've been run over during the Christmas season. But uh, hopefully, hopefully for you, you've experienced that season where there is that joy of Christ and that peace of Christ and that, uh, that wonder uh, of Christmas. But, uh, you know, e- either way, if you uh, feel like you've been run over or you've experienced that joy, the party's over. The eggnog's gone. But here's the thing. Jesus remains. Now, <clears throat> you know, when you came in this morning and you got your bulletin and you looked at that, you might have thought it was kind of a strange-looking cover. Oftentimes what happens, the tradition around here anyway, is that uh, Karen Peoples makes the bulletins and she'll oftentimes take my sermon title, which sometimes is a little, you know, off the wall, and she will give me a joke bulletin cover, which she did this time. And I looked at it and said, that's it. That's the one. So you wound up with the joke bulletin cover, <laughs> which um, I think kind of captures it, that when, when the party's over and the eggnog's gone, we've got to figure out what comes next. And, and, uh, and the cool thing is, is that Jesus does remain, that he is here. Now, Christmas is a traditional time. And, uh, you know, we've got various traditions that maybe you, you celebrate in, in your family, and your household. When I was growing up, you know, some of those traditions were really good, and uh, some of them were not so, not so great. Uh, what we would do on Christmas Eve is we would go to, you know, Christmas Eve worship and then come home, and we would open one present, and only one present. And it was always the same present, pajamas. And, it, you know, it wasn't so much getting pajamas that was a problem for me as a kid, even though it would have certainly been far more fun to have opened a different present. But the problem was, was that these were pajamas that were still in the wrapper from the store, and I was expected to wear them that night. I mean, they, they, they had the starch in them. They were stiff. I felt like Randy from A Christmas Story. I couldn't move my arms, you know, once I had this thing on. And it was not exactly the world's one, most wonderful and appreciated tradition for me. But the next day, we would get up in the morning, and uh, we would, you know, in those days, we actually had records. And we put the record of Eugene Ormandy's uh, Philadelphia Orchestra Christmas on, on the stereo and uh, would hear it, you know, go into these rousing um, uh, Christmas carols with, uh, with the orchestra as we would open our gifts. And it was a great tradition as far as I was concerned. Uh, Linda and I, you know, we, in, in getting married, we had to kind of combine some traditions and figure out what each other's traditions were at Christmas time. And this year at Christmas, you know, um, Linda said, you know, we were talking about what we would have for Christmas dinner. And uh, she said, well, you know, 
I'm thinking of prime rib this year. And I said, prime rib? What are you talking about? It's not Christmas without ham. I mean, come on. You know, you got turkey at Thanksgiving, you get ham at Christmas. I mean, that's just the way that it works. I mean, that, that's tradition. Thankfully, Jared's boss gave him a ham for Christmas, which he brought over, and he saved Christmas. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was great. And at Christmas dinner, over our ham dinner, I, I broke out the, uh, the pickled herring, which was the original sushi, by the way. And for some reason, no one participated in it with me. I don't know why. You know, it's a tradition. But, you know, we've got various traditions as we, as we celebrate Christmas and we go through that season. And, and the question is, you know, as busy and as packed as our Christmas seasons might have been and as filled with traditions as they might have been, imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph. They had the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem while Mary was, as the word says, great with child. Could not have been fun. They had the rejection of them from the inn. Uh, they had the birth in the filth of the stable. They had Jesus wrapped in the claws that they brought with them, whatever that was. And they made use of whatever cradle they could find, which turned out to be a manger for the, for the cattle. They had shepherds and stories of angels. They, they had quite a Christmas, although they really didn't call it Christmas, of course, at that time. So after the party was over and after all the shepherds went home and the angels uh, went back home and, and everything was done, and, and in other words, after the eggnog was gone, what did Mary and Joseph do? What happened for them? Well, they made the journey to Jerusalem following the traditions of the Jewish people. Forty days after giving a birth, a woman was supposed to go to the Jerusalem temple and there um, offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of her sins. And it might sound like a strange thing, a strange kind of a custom, a strange kind of a law to expect a woman to have to give a sacrifice in response to giving birth. But that's what they did. And it's because they uh, believed in the power of worship. They believed in a holy God. And they believed in the power of life. And, and that God gives life, and, 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 and with life comes blood, life blood. And if anybody touches blood, such as you know, a warrior in battle or a woman at that time of the month or, or somebody, you know, a woman who gives birth or someone who helps her to give birth, uh, they would then need to go and offer a sacrifice because they would be considered to be unclean because of touching that blood. And so Mary went off with Joseph to the temple in Jerusalem. And it says that they went there to uh, uh, make themselves clean, both of them, okay? Which implies that while they were in that stable, that Joseph must have helped Mary to deliver the baby. Uh, That he would have also touched blood in the process of that. And uh, it kind of makes sense because they're away from home, they're away from family, they, you know, no room for them in the inn, there, there's nobody around. I mean, they're on their own here, and, and, and they need to make it through the best they can. So their tradition then was to go to the temple and make that offering. And the offering that they made, it says, was this pair of birds, 
which if you go back to the law of Moses, what you can see is that there's various offerings that could be made, and uh, the one that would cost the least was the one that they gave, which implies that these were poor people. They didn't have much money to be able to, to make much of an offering. But that was the offering that they made because they wanted to be made right with God. Then they presented their month-and-a-half-old son to the Lord, much like Hannah did with Samuel generations before when she brought Samuel to Eli, uh, the, the priest, to dedicate him to the Lord. Now they're bringing Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. In other words, with all of these things, after the party's over, after the eggnog is gone, after all that is done and, and the next step in life happens, what do Mary and Joseph do? They go to church. They went to church, much like you're doing today. Because they, they knew that it was important to be right with God, and that's what they wanted to do. And the irony of all of this is that on their way to church, on their way to be made right with God, they are holding this month-and-a-half-old child who himself has come into this world to make all of us right with God. They're, they're on their way to the temple to offer a sacrifice while holding this child who will himself become the sacrifice for all of us to be made right with God. And on the way, they met a man in the temple by the name of Simeon. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Simeon. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know his situation in life. This is the first time we encounter this man, and, and we would encounter him as Mary and Joseph are walking through the courts of the temple. And, and Mary is still there, so it must have been one of the outer courts of the temple. And there Simeon sees them in the crowd and comes over to say some words to them. Now, when they're walking through the temple, they're not exactly carrying a sign on them saying, hey, Messiah, right here, okay, it's pointing to Jesus. But somehow Simeon is prompted by the Spirit of God to identify Jesus, this month-and-a-half-year-old child, as being the Messiah among this crowd of people. There he is. And he says these words, Luke 2, 29. Sovereign Lord... As you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now today, I want you to think for a moment, all right? Think um, what it would it take, what, what person would you need to meet, what, what would you need to do to be able to say, okay, now I can die happy. Okay? For Simeon, it was meeting Jesus, this baby, this month and a half old Jesus. Now, Jesus hadn't done anything yet. As a matter of fact, at this point in time, he needs somebody else to change his diapers. Okay? He hasn't done anything yet. But, but Simeon is a man of faith who, you know, with that faith, he is able to look at Jesus and see the fulfillment of God's promises, and he doesn't need to see Jesus do anything because he knows that if God has promised it, it will happen. And through eyes of faith, he's able to see it as though he is there. He doesn't say to God, okay, now, God, um, you know, now that this is the opening chapter here, uh, I'd love it if you would keep me around for another 33 years so I can uh, see the things that are coming up that this child is going to be doing uh, when he uh, comes into his ministry here. 
He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I can now die happy because I've seen the one. You know? And, and in that, what we see is this example of tremendous faith. And again, the irony here. Here we have Mary and Joseph going to the temple to be made right with God. And God places this man, Simeon, in their path, identifies the child Jesus for him so that he will utter these words. And in the process of doing that, he demonstrates what it takes to really be made right with God, which is putting your faith in Jesus. And and faith means believing that if God has said it, it is so. It is done. And that's the faith of Simeon. And that's the kind of thing that makes a person right with God. Boy, God, God works in amazing ways. But I tell you what, he, Simeon went on from there to say some other things as well. He said these blessings, but he also went on from there. He said, he said these things uh, to Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2, verse 33. He said, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now Mary's going to realize the fulfillment of this prophecy and that's what this is, is prophecy. Mary's going to realize the fulfillment of this prophecy when she's standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus. This, this one she's carrying at this moment, a month, month and a half old son at this moment in time and she's standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus seeing him being sacrificed and spilling his blood on that cross so that we might be made right with God. That's when her soul will be pierced too. And he says there that people will be divided. There will be those who will speak against him, be those who will be falling, and those who will be putting faith in him like Simeon, those who will be rising, that the world will be divided. And we can see today as we look around that the world is divided, right? I mean, we look around ourselves in, in the news, and sometimes it seems as though the darkness is, is winning. And we can look at it and, and look back to this and say, but this is what the prophecy said. And if God says it, it is so. So it co- shouldn't come as any surprise to us when we look at our divided world. Instead, what needs to happen is, as he says here about the hearts, thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, is to look at at our own hearts and say, okay, am I standing with him? If the world is divided, where's my heart? Am I standing with him? Is my heart with the world or is it with Jesus? You know, where's my heart in this? All humanity will be divided in two, but we know how the story ends. And now when we look at Christmas, we can say, okay, the party's over. The eggnog's gone. But uh, what next? What next? The trash is out by the curb. The tree looks a little bare. But we know that Jesus remains. We know that our Savior lives. And He is with us still.